read God's Word. Open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you need a Bible, uh, grab the one in front of you and turn to page 933. Page 933 will make your way to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. And if you don't have a Bible and you actually need one, I want to encourage you to take the one that you have in front of you as a gift from us to you. I want to make sure everyone at this church has a copy of Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Well, it won't come as any surprise to those of you who know me that I love the church. It's not because I grew up in it. I didn't. It's not because I always have great experiences in it. I don't. As a matter of fact, my experience or how I think about the church has very little to do with the love I have for the church. Now, that might come as a shock to hear because we live in a culture where our personal experience seems to be the metric by which we gauge everything by, right? That's how Yelp has a business model. If I have a good experience, I'm going to give something five stars. If I don't have a good experience, I'll give it something less with no thought about it. We do that with coffee houses, we do that with uh, restaurants, we do that with home services, and people do it with churches as well. But I love the church, not necessarily because I always have a great experience about it. Now, I also realize that in our culture, another buzzword is authenticity, and, and if you're authentic, then you do things that you love and you feel good about it, and, and if, to do otherwise is inauthentic, as if love was just about sentimental feelings and good experiences. We all know that love is much more than that. Love does include good experiences, right? Love does include sentiment, but love also includes sacrifice and commitment and devotion. The truth is, the church, not the institution, right? Not the structures of it, but the people have simultaneously been a source of great joy, uh, of comfort and growth and frustration, irritation, and struggle in my own Christian life, right? And if I'm going to be honest, I have been the same for other people in the church. I hope I've been a source of joy and comfort and strength because I know I've been a source of irritation, frustration, and struggle, right? And as I've thought about the church over the years, that's about how the church should be when it's a collection of redeemed sinners, right? That the church is a place of redeemed sinners is a hint to why I love the church, because it's a display of God's glory. If you're a note taker, write down Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Paul's writing to the church at Rome. He says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus. That's us. That's the church. Think about that. The fact that Scott, David, me, and Kyle over there, back from Japan, so good to see you guys, got to catch up. The fact that we are being conformed to be like Jesus himself is either the biggest joke of history or a miracle of the ages, right? In some cases, it might be a little bit of both. 
But the fact is, that's what the church is, a collection of people being conformed and transformed to be the image of Jesus Christ. Yet, yet, despite the fact that Jesus himself founded the church, that Jesus himself shed his blood for the church, that Jesus himself intimately identifies with the church, that Jesus calls the church his bride, that Jesus calls the church his body, many Christians don't give the church a second thought. In his book, The Church, The Gospel Made Visible, Mark Dever writes, this disturbing, writes about this disturbing trend. He says this, for too many Christians today, the doctrine of the church is like a decoration on the front of a building. Maybe it's pretty, maybe it's not, but finally it's unimportant because it bears no weight. Yet nothing could be further from the truth. The doctrine of the church is of utmost importance. It is the most visible part of Christian theology. That's an amazing, let's stop there. Just think about that. Boy, that's insightful and true, isn't it? To the watching world around us, the doctrine of the church is really the most visible doctrine that they will see. And it is vitally connected with every other part. Well, as we come to the kind of the essence or maybe the core of the pastoral epistles, and Paul, what he writes about in 1 Timothy, did you notice in these three verses, it's about two things. Number one, the significance of the church, and number two, related to that, they're interrelated, is the supremacy of Christ. The church is significant because of what it is and what it does. Notice in these this three-packed verses, Paul talks about us being as the family of God, the people of the living God, ecclesia, church, that's, that's the word church, which is the Greek ecclesia, means the called out ones, an assembly, a gathering, can be a people, and the pillar and buttress of the truth. In other words, the Christian community we call the church is that community that embodies and proclaims the supremacy of Christ, which was his second point, that he reveals godliness and he redeems the world. We see that just in these three verses. So there's a lot in these three verses. So buckle up. Let's get into it, number one. Number one, the significance of the church. In our text this morning, we come to the purpose statement, really, of 1 Timothy. And Paul writes... I write these things. What's he referring to by these things? Well, everything from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 6, verse 21. All these things Paul's talking about. Remember the importance of sound doctrine, the roles of men and women, uh, the, the importance of church leadership, and so much more. I write all these things, he says, so you know how to behave. So you know how to behave. Paul is not writing a th about theoretical knowledge here. Paul is writing a how-to section of Scripture. But notice, like is so common in many of the Bible's how-to's, you don't see a list of do's or don'ts, do you, right? What you see is a list of the things you are. Keep in mind, the Bible always focuses on who you are first before it focuses on what you do. Because a lot of what we do, friends, is an overflow of who we are. The book of Proverbs says it this way, keep your heart, 
your heart being um, synonymous with the whole totality of your person, your emotions, your thought process. The, 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 when the word the heart shows up, it is theological shorthand for the you that's inside of you. Keep your heart, keep you with what? All vigilance. Why? Because out of it flow the springs of your life. The Bible always places the emphasis on who a Christian is before it talks about what a Christian does. We saw this last week when we talked about church leadership, that that whole list was about who a leader is before it's about what a leader does. More to the point, remember the book of Ephesians. Six chapters, the first three chapters of the book is dedicated to one singular idea, establishing the Ephesian Christians' identity in Christ, who they are, before it pivots at chapter four and then goes on for three chapters about explaining what Christians do. Because the Bible's always concerned about who we are before it gets to what we do. Friends, this is why in the church covenant that we as elders are presenting to this church, it starts with this very opening introduction remembering that it's by God's mercy and grace that we experience our salvation and have become inheritors with Christ of all of God's abundant riches. We affirm these promises as ones who have been called out of the world to become a people for God's own glory. Who we are is always the thing we focus on before the things we talk about and what we do. And so Paul reminds them as he's talking about the climax of these pastoral epistles, and he gives us three amazing images. The first is that we are the family of God. I love that Paul's first image is that of a household, a family unit. Because the, the idea there is that it should stir uh, images of intimacy and relationship, that if you are a Christian, God is your father, and every, everyone else is your brother and sister in Christ. So that first picture, and notice that it establishes this kind of intimacy, but it also talks about an internal way we relate to one another as family. Now, in the Roadheaver household, includes me, obviously, my wife, Lori, my two sons, Asher and Asa, my daughter, Anna. Um, Fish that we constantly get from Christ Community Church events. I don't know why we give away fish, but a collection of fish, and our dog, Napoleon. And in the Roadiever household, it runs by dad's rules, at least theoretically, basically. I mean, that's what we try. It's how we will treat one another, how we treat mom, what can be watched on TV or watched on the computers, how we speak to one another, how we use our family time, all run by dad's rules because dad is called to lead the household. Friends, in some sense, I hope when you read 1 Timothy, this book should encourage us to ask God, our Father, okay, Dad, how do we behave? This is, after all, your household, not mine. I don't set the rules. You do. How should we behave in your house? Now, I want you to take away this concept of house. We think of structure. That's not the idea here. The house isn't the building. The house is the family that resides in it. The book of 1 Timothy is to encourage us, how do we live in God's household? And the idea is that there's an intimacy there, but it goes also by God, dad's rules because dad loves us and leads us. 
And so the usage of a, a, a household is a very appropriate one because it stirs concepts of intimacy and structure and direction. And so Paul's been writing to us how we ought to conduct ourselves in this family. But the second image that Paul provides is, it's, and in the ESV, it's the church of the living God, but I've been using the phrase the people of the living God because that's what church is. It's the, it's the people, the ones called out of the world. The Greek word ekklesia means the assembly, the called out ones. So often church thinks that we think of structure and buildings, so I like to say the people of the living God. And Paul and the Old Testament writers often make the point of referring to God as the true and living God, in contrast so much in the Old Testament to the deadness and falseness of our idols. And so Paul reminds them that you are people of the living God. The living God is omnipotent. Our idols are impotent. That's a very big difference. And Paul rejoiced that the Thessalonian Christians did this very thing when he wrote to them, 1 Thessalonians 1.9, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. But the great thing about the concept of living God is that it establishes that God is also the source of life and our idols never are. Right? And so when we think about it, in the New Testament, we don't see the words idols or idolatry coming up a lot because of the shift of the New Testament from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the term idolatry was used a lot, and what an idol is is anything that captures your affections or establishes your identity, gives you your sense of meaning, value, and purpose, that thing is your God, and so unless that is found in God or in anything else, that anything else is a functional idol. Whether it's your achievements, and that makes you feel like you are successful. Whether it's success, and that success makes you feel like you have value, that's an idol. Our value comes from the fact that we are made in God's image and loved by Him, not because you are successful. Maybe it's finances, because you feel that finances gives you security, when true security only comes in Christ, but now finances functions as a functional God. That's an idol. Right, so you understand this concept. And in the Old Testament, the word idolatry was used a lot because the Old Testament emphasis was on national ethnic Israel, a nation being formed, and that talked about their religious, man the, the, the manifestation of their heart, and idolatry was the thing. In the New Testament, it shifts not from a national entity of people, but an international group of people, and it's more intimate. So we don't see idolatry as much. We see terms like uh, lust of the flesh, desires of the flesh, but it's the same concept being translated over. And we do the same thing. We have functional idols. And friends, all idols are dead. And so there's a constant refrain in the Scriptures that we have a living God. We don't have dead idols that are impotent. We have a living God that is omnipotent. And friends, this is so important to ask yourself, do I live my life like I have a living God? It's very easy to say yes. It's very easy to say, yes, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, but live like he's still six feet under or in the tomb, to be correct, and not have a living God. It's so easy to turn to our idols of achievement, of acceptance, of security, and realize and forget the fact that our idols will always betray us. And so all in the Bible, it's constantly reminding us that our God is the living God. He's not a dead God. He's not an impotent God. He's the omnipotent God. 
Friends, the living God empowers us to serve with vitality, not drudgery. Look at what the Rome, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 says. How much more will the blood of Christ, and, and whenever you read things like the blood of Christ, that's a, a synonym for the whole work of Christ, right? How much more the work of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Having a living God makes all the difference in the world. A poet once wrote that the living God gives us a love that can never be fathomed, a life that can never die, a righteousness that can never be tarnished, a peace that can never be understood, a rest that can never be disturbed, a joy that can never be diminished, a hope that can never be disappointed, a glory that can never be cloaked, a light that can never be darkened, a purity that can never be defiled, a beauty that can never be marred, and a wisdom that can never be baffled, with resources that can never be exhausted, because all these things do not find their source in us. They find their source in the living God. Friends, as I've rattled through that poem, if you feel like, hey, I'm not having that peace, I don't experience that joy, I don't understand that rest, and I sure don't feel like I have that glory, maybe it's because you're looking for those things in sources other than the living God himself, maybe in yourself, maybe in the idols of our culture. I just, this morning, a little confession here, went on Facebook, I know, it's Sunday morning, but there I was, checking out Facebook, and I saw a dear friend of mine's daughter making a confession that she was abandoning social media because she realized she spent almost nine hours a day on it. You know, you can see that with your iPhone. It tells you how long you spend on those things. And she made the connection. I just love this about her, that that become her functional God. Though she says she bows at the foot of the cross, she often is bowing at the temple of her iPhone. And you can literally see it. And she's recognized, she's bowed to a false God that gave her a sense of her identity because of her likes. It gave her a sense of purpose because she could feel like connecting or whatever it was. And in fact, it promised her life, but only gave death. Do we have a living God? She says, I need to plug back into the God I often confess with my, la- my mouth, but don't follow with my life. We are reminded that we are a people of the living God. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, I've come to give them life and give it to them abundantly. Man, that is good to be reminded of. So the first picture of being a family of God, the idea of there's this intimacy because of these relationships, the second picture of being the people of God, there's this idea of a vitality because of that relationship. But Paul gives one more picture of what the church is, and it's not a picture of necessarily intimacy or vitality, but it's a picture of responsibility. He says that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, keep in mind, the Ephesians who were receiving this letter would have immediately uh, resonated with Paul's use of the word here. After all, their city boasted one of the seven ancient wonders of the world the temple of Artemis, Diana of the Ephesians, with columns nearly six feet in diameter, standing 60 feet tall. Now, that's not the temple of Diana of the Ephesians. That's the uh, Pantheon in Athens. But I want you to see that to get a sense of the scale that they would have known immediately when Paul talked about being this pillar and buttress of the truth. They would have immediately, uh, some translations call it column or pillar or pillar or column. So they would have thought of that They would have known what he was talking about. Currently, this is what the temple of Artemis looks like. 
It's nothing but ruins. I also think that's just a historical irony that this ancient wonder of the world lies desolate when the gospel reigns supreme. These amazing pillars, these columns would hold the roof, as you can see, firmly up and high above. In the same way the church, you and I, we are to hold the gospel firmly up and high above so everyone can see it. But here's the reality, friends. We have a tough job, don't we? we uh, this, this holding up the gospel, we have a tough job because not only is truth a disappearing concept, a concept that's losing traction in the world, but the concept of the church is losing traction with Christians. Let me say that again. We have a really difficult situation right now because not just because truth is a concept that's losing traction out there, but because the church is losing traction as a concept in here. We've individualized our Christianity so much, we have no sense of what it means to be part of a people, as a, as a people of God, as a household of God, as these pillars and buttresses holding up truth. But as a Christian transformed by the gospel, we embrace both. We ought to embrace both truth and the church. Friends, let me ask you this by way of application. What can you do this week to get a better grasp of the truth? What can you do this week to get a better grasp of the truth? Let me give you a, 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 a negative and a positive just to get the, the, the thinking going. Number one, stop getting your news from social media. That's a real easy one, right? Stop getting your news from social media. Stop social media. It actually wouldn't be a bad thing either. But stop getting your news from social media. Number two, start by reading thoughtful books. Start by reading thoughtful books. I don't say that just because I'm a nerd and I love books, although that is probably true. But that was the means by which God changed my life. I ever tell you that time I failed a true and false quiz in ninth grade history? because I couldn't spell the answers correctly, right? So that just gives you a sense of my intellectual caliber there. But when I got saved, you didn't get that, right? True and false are the answers. I couldn't spell it. Okay, all right, work with me here. I know it's only one hour you miss. The point is, the Bible says it's by the renewing of our mind, friends. The renewing of our mind that we can discern the will of God, the acceptable and perfect will of God, that doesn't come by osmosis. So start by reading thoughtful books. Let me make a plug for the book spot there. The reason that ministry exists is because we want to put into your hands all kinds of good books, thin books, medium books, thick books, whatever it is on every topic, theology, culture, marriage, dating, PTSD, ADHD, all those things from a biblical perspective. Why? Because we are the pillar and buttress of the truth. And that's the best deal in town, friends. That's the best deal in town. You won't find books cheaper than that. I know this is a shameless plug, but I'm passionate about this. If you can't buy one of those, then take one of them. That's how it works. If you can't afford a book from there, then take it. If you can't afford more than one book, then give more. But that's how we can get a better grasp of the truth. Stop getting our, our truth from sources that aren't true and start reading thoughtful books. What, friends, let me ask you this. What can you do to get a better appreciation of the church this week? Let me give you again a stop and a start. Stop having a consumer mindset about the church, right? 
And, and, and I think we're pretty good with that. The church is not a commodity to be marketed. We're a community to be engaged. We are a people with a mission. Stop having a consumer mindset. Start by having gospel conversations like this one. Ask someone about their salvation story. When was the last time you asked somebody that you fellowship with in this church, I don't know your testimony. Tell me how you went from darkness to light, from death to life. Tell me that story. Because it's always encouraging to hear stories of the living God transforming people. How can we be a better grasp of the truth? How can we have a better grasp of the church? And so for these three reasons, that we are the household of God, that we are people of the living God, that we are pillar and buttress of the truth, the church is significant. Now, having ended this last verse on the emphasis of the truth of the gospel, Paul now writes in verse 16 of the grandeur of the gospel in terms of him who is its reality. See verse 16, the supremacy of Christ, and he says, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. Now, godliness is a favorite term of Paul in the pastoral epistles. He uses it about 10 times. It, it means loyalty. It means reverence. Uh, according awesome respect to God is the concept of godliness. And the word mystery here, let me just clear that up. It's not like we think of mystery, where a mystery is something that's hidden and archaic and unknown. It does have that element, but in the, the Greek, musturion, where we get mystery, you can kind of sound, hear how they sound alike means something that was once hidden, but now has been revealed, okay? Something that was once hidden, but that is now revealed, which is why Paul in the book of Ephesians can call the church a mystery. He wasn't saying, because like, man, I can't figure you people out. You're just unknown to me. That's not what he was saying. He's saying this church, this international group of all kinds of people was once hidden, and now it is made clear. And he says, this, this mystery, great is the mystery of godliness, and that godliness, that mystery is a revelation of what is true godliness, true respect accorded to God, true loyalty to God, and look at it, verse 16, it is a description of the work of Jesus Christ and Jesus himself. Now, verse 16 by the way, you can see it probably formatted in your ESV. That's the way the translators are indicating that this was probably a hymn or prose or a creed of some sort, right? So they would have sung this, this, this hymn. Um, it'd be interesting to sing that as a hymn, but that, that was a song to them. And what a contrast of confession. Again, keep in mind, remember, Timothy is pastoring the church, the church is at Ephesus, we also have a book in the New Testament, Ephesians, right? So Ephesus played a vital role in the, the life of the early church. And I love looking at verse 16 because in my mind, I like to think that there were some men who are reading, some women who are professing that confession, who once were part of the Ephesian mob in Acts chapter 24, or excuse me, 19, crying out, great is Diana Artemis of the Ephesians. When the gospel came to the city of Ephesus, it caused quite an uproar. 
and people were chanting, shouting down uh, Paul and his partners in the gospel trying to shut down the nascent church, and they screamed for two hours, great is Diana Artemis of the Ephesians, over and over and over again. I like to think in my imagination that some of those men, some of those women are now making this confession we see here in verse 16. Because friends, this is exactly what the work of Christ in the gospel does. It transforms our allegiances. When we once cried out for our idols, we now cry out for Christ. And friends, I recognize this is another promise of the gospel that is increasingly harder to believe, certainly in the world, but even increasingly in the church, that this kind of fundamental change is actually possible. And friends, when you give up on the hope that change can actually happen, that leads to despair and discouragement. Friends, one of the reasons we have been putting an emphasis on biblical counseling in our church for the last three years is because we are convinced that the Bible isn't meant to be read for more information and knowledge, but for application and change. Because that's what the Bible intends, for all of us to change. And this is exactly what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that when we behold the glory of Christ, we are all transformed into that image, one degree of glory to another, bit by bit, but it does happen. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here in verse 16. He is holding out the beauty of who Christ is. You notice these six lines, if you look at them, they break down nicely into three chunks of two. The first chunk is the work of Christ accomplished. Look at that, he says, manifested in the flesh. He's referring to the incarnation and earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Right, John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Verse 14, and the word dwelt amongst us. He was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says, We know that He was the Son of God because He was raised with power. And so that's how He was vindicated. So these first two lines are talking about the work of Christ, Christ accomplished. He came to do His work and He was vindicated because He was risen from the grave. But the second two lines talk about the work of Christ being made known, seen by angels. Do you notice in the gospel narratives at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, it's announced by who? Angels. And at the very end, it's angels, especially in the Gospel of Luke, angels proclaiming what had happened. And we know from, I think it's believe in Peter, Second Peter or Hebrews, that angels longed to look into what God was up to. See, God had the redemptive plan in mind all along, but the angels, they're not omniscient. They don't know, but they long to look into it. And Paul is saying, this gospel has been seen by angels, but not just angels. More importantly, it's been proclaimed among the nations. Right? How does Matthew 28 end? Go ye therefore into all the nations, making disciples, teaching them and commanding them to obey these things. So the first two is about the work of Christ accomplished, and the second is the work of Christ being made known, and the final two, the work of Christ acknowledged, believed on in the world. Here we are on the other side of the globe 2,000 years later, believing on the gospel, taken up in glory. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, that God had subjected all things, all things under Christ. 
He is enthroned as king above all. It is this great mystery, what was once hidden but is now revealed, that the church confesses, that the church holds up high, that shapes the church's conduct before the Lord, each other, and the world. And Paul says all the preceding and following instructions that Paul gives have their theological basis in this, in this reality, that this great truth, that the cosmic Christ is Lord and Savior over the church. Who is his family? The people of a living God, right? The pillar and fortress or buttress of truth. So you notice those directions, all those metaphors. There's responsibilities we have internally, how we are to conduct ourselves here. There is a way we conduct ourselves and relate vertically, right? So there's that intimacy. Then there's the, the vitality of being a people of a living God that we press into. And then finally, there is an element to the world. We are a pillar and buttress of the truth. We are holding up the truth of the gospel. And so what Paul is getting at here is that is what the church is. There's these relationships and obligations internally, upwardly, and outwardly. That's what we are. And friends, I get it. It's easy, easy, very easy to forget that's what we are as a church in the day-to-day grind. And, And if we're not keeping our eye on the gospel and getting conformed by the word, We can easily think that, oh, sorry, I didn't realize I wasn't updating the slide, sorry. We can easily think that the church is a social gathering, right? It's it's where my friends and I kind of hang out, or if you have a religious impulse, this is something that fits you, and forget the reality of what we are and the implications of that. And Paul wants to remind us that that's what we are. We are the household of God. We have an obligation to love one another as family through thick and thin, not just when things are good, but especially when things are hard. That we are a people of the living God. Don't forget that you have a living God and press into that. And if you're not experiencing that, you lean into your family and say, I'm not experiencing the living God. Can you help me? Can you hold me accountable? Can you encourage me? Can you admonish me? And that we are a pillar and buttress of the truth. We hold the gospel up high for everyone to see, and we hold it firm. We don't back down. We don't give up. That's what we are, and by God's grace, we can be those things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of 1 Timothy, and we thank you for the church, Lord, that we get to be a part of something this amazing. Lord, I know that our experiences with it, with each other, isn't always what we want it to be, but I also know from reading your word, it's at those moments that the church is doing the work that you've created the church to do, to make us more like Christ. Father, would you help us to relate to one another this way as family? Would you help us to relate to you as the source of life? Would you help us to relate to the world as a pillar and buttress of truth, holding it up high, holding it up firm? Lord, for this very thing is why you founded the church, why Christ shed his blood for the church. Father, we pray that we would identify ourselves as intimately with her as Christ did with us. And we'll thank you for all this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, 
visit us at www.cccLH.org.